0: a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and I'm joined this week by our illustrious Law360 senior producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? And welcome.
1: It's great, Natalie. It's wonderful to be here with you.
0: We are officially in the post-Jimmy era, um, and we are very sad about it. And, you know, it's going to be a tough going, but we are going to go as the saying goes, keep calm and carry on.
1: That's right. Uh, you know, the news doesn't stop. And I don't think Jimmy would want it any other way. We have to carry on. And so uh, there's going to be a few different people filling in and uh, doing hosting. And uh, I'm just happy to be here. I've listened to you and Jimmy for a long time behind the scenes. And I feel like I learned from the best. So I'll try my best today.
0: Yes. For, for listeners out there, Stephen has always been uh, behind the scenes. uh for all of our segments, kind of helping Jimmy and me get through it and, and making us sound better. Helping, so I'm,
1: helping is a strong word. I don't know.
0: <laughs> uh, majorly helping us uh, get through it, and I am very happy to have him in front of the mic this episode and for future, future weeks as well. Um, but let's get into it because this is a crazy week that we are kicking off with. Um, it has been a busy week of opinions and arguments. We are, you know, at the trail end of the terms argument sessions. This is the last one April. Um, and we are finally seeing some opinions trickle in. I know we've been on watch for those. Um, and we got a you know, pretty nice-sized chunk of opinions in the last few days since we last recorded. Um, And we'll get to those in a second. But first, I think there's an update on an emergency docket case uh, in order here.
1: Yeah, this is one we've been closely watching. It's a high-profile shadow docket case involving access to the FDA-approved abortion pill, Mifepristone. And Look, I'll just be honest. Um, our timing here is is not great on this. We're recording on Friday morning. We waited as long as we could, and there's actually a stay in the case that lifts tonight. So, you know, chances are by the time you hear this, the court will have decided something at least. But just to catch up a little bit, this all stems from a district court ruling down in Texas, where a couple weeks ago a federal judge revoked the FDA's authorization of mifepristone, which is the top abortion drug. It's also prescribed to help some women through miscarriages. And around the same time the Texas judge ruled, a federal judge in the state of Washington essentially did an opposite ruling and required the FDA to continue supplying the drug. So this sets up this untenable situation the FDA and the drug maker Danco Laboratories appealed the Texas ruling to the Fifth Circuit. And last week, the Fifth Circuit partially upheld the district court's findings. The appeals court didn't go so far as to revoke every approval of the drug, but they rolled back all approvals that happened after 2016, some of which increased accessibility to the drug. So basically, set the drug back to 2016 days.
0: That's right. And a lot of those approvals happened um, the post 2016 ones happened like during the pandemic and increased like accessibility like from for remote prescriptions and telehealth and just things like that.
1: Right. So now we're at the Supreme Court and as I mentioned Justice Alito issued a 5-day stay last week. It was supposed to end on Wednesday. He extended it until Friday today. And so the court It could keep quiet and let the Fifth Circuit ruling take effect. Um, They could issue a full injunction. They could tee this up for expedited oral argument. It's really tough to say what they're going to decide here, but we are certainly going to find out soon. And I feel pretty confident that this is not the last that we're going to hear about this case.
0: Agreed. I I agree with you, Stephen. I think uh, this is one that's probably going to be bubbling up at the court uh, or maybe they'll take it up on the docket we'll see um, yeah. but turning to opinions uh, there have been five opinions from the Supreme Court which you know as we've been kind of like really wanting opinions to start picking up that's a, that's a nice little chunk to to come uh, down the pipeline. Uh, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting mix. It's been a lot of unanimous or near unanimous opinions. And a point that kind of stood out to me is that Justice Jackson, uh, it's her inaugural term, as, as listeners know, uh, she's still in the majority. Uh, every opinion that she's that's been out, she's been in the majority. Her streak Continues.
1: Yeah, still a, a, an undefeated streak, I guess, if you want to call it that.
0: I guess. I mean, this look—it's—it's—it's it's, it's pretty common for like rookie justices in their freshman year to ten, tend to kind of join the majorities. Um, but I'm—I'm I'm still waiting to see which one will be the case. They'll have her break.
1: She's very agreeable right now, but yeah, we'll see how long <laughs> that lasts. I will—we'll we'll keep an eye on it. But we, talk us through because I know that there was a couple of big ones this week. More than we can even cover on this show, but uh, Def- what, what's a quick little rundown?
0: Definitely more than we can cover. Um, you know, so the justices, uh, I will say just briefly on a few of the cases that we've talked about previously. Um the justices on Wednesday ruled unanimously that Hawk Bank, which is Turkey's state owner lender, was not immune from prosecution and does not get sovereign immunity um, from federal cases in the u s. Also unanimously this week, uh, the justices said that New Jersey's allowed to exit a harbor policing pact it held with New York that was created like back in the 1950s um, to combat organized crime at the docks that like they share, basically, at the border of the, the states. Um, so that's going to cause some, some some tri-state strife.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, I... I saw that one come down and I thought, yeah, organized crime down at the docks, 1950s, this pact between like two neighboring states. should Is this like a podcast special series? I don't, we'll see about that, but it, it it's was so interesting. interesting.
0: It's so interesting because it was like, it all came down to the fact that there's like no provision that says like these parties cannot, you know, I don't really like decide this pact that they can like end this pact. Um, so, you know, devil's in the details.
1: And New Jersey, you know, if you live in New York and you think about New Jersey a certain way and New Jersey just said, no, thank you. We're not going to be a part of this anymore.
0: (laughs) So that was definitely an interesting one. Um, We'll see if something with that pact comes back around at at some point for us to dig further into. But this episode... um, we actually want to dig in a little deeper on a ruling from last Friday that was related to whether federal courts can hear challenges to the structure of the Federal Trade Commission and the Securities Exchange Commission without going through the whole administrative appeals process first.
1: Right. I This one, this one really grabbed my attention and seemed very important when it came out last Friday. Natalie, can you walk through the backstory a little bit, though? What exactly happened in this case?
0: Yeah. So first things first, it's a unanimous decision, right? Delivered by Justice Kagan. Um, And it's actually in a pair of consolidated suits. Um, In one suit, Axon Enterprise Inc., which has been facing an antitrust investigation, sued the FTC, saying its in-house administrative proceedings violated due process, equal protection rights. In the other suit, uh, a certified public accountant named Michelle Cochran, who's faced an investigation from the SEC about her own like work and auditing standards, sued to challenge basically the same administrative proceedings of the SEC. So basically, both the company and the accountant are saying your internal process for investigating and having enforcement actions violates my due process rights. I want to sue you without going through all the administrative like appeals process. It is my constitutional right to sue you in federal court right now. Um, Axon lost in the Ninth Circuit, but the accountant won in the Fifth Circuit, setting up the stage for these cases to be heard by the court. With Friday's decision, they both go back, remanded for further proceedings. I want to be clear, the Supreme Court decision is not on the merits of either of these cases. Um, You know, whether Axon or Cochran are being deprived of their constitutional rights, but whether these cases can be brought up in a federal court before going through that administrative appeals process.
1: Right. I think K- Kagan had a Kagan, one of the first lines of Kagan's opinion said, This is a, a you know, goes to the fundamental, even existential issue of the, the structures of these agencies. But we are not deciding that today. We are deciding if it can be heard in federal court or not.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, Kagan also had, I think, another kind of uh, good quote, um, kind of referring to, Why these cases can go to federal court, Um, she was, I think, talking about the FTC and she said, you know, the commission knows a good deal about competition policy, but nothing special about the separation of powers. And that's what the justices basically unanimously decided these kind of issues should be seen by a federal court.
1: Right. And now this was a unanimous opinion, but there was a couple of justices who wrote separately on this one, weren't they?
0: That's right. So Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch both wrote separate concurring opinions. With Justice Gorsuch, he basically laid out a different path for reaching the same conclusion. Um, So the majority relied on a multi-factor test that they had first used in 1994 in a different case to figure out if a dispute should go through agency review first or not. And Gorsuch said, look, that test is not necessary. Title 28 of the the U.S. Code gives district courts jurisdiction of all civil actions arising under the Constitution or federal laws. Let's keep it simple. That's how I would get to this. Um, Justice Thomas's concurrence now was a little bit more pointed. He said while he agreed with the majority's decision, he wanted to write separately to express the grave doubts about whether it's right that Congress gave these agencies the right to review cases that implicate private rights um, like life, liberty, property. You know, he said the fact that given the sizable fines these agencies can impose and how in like Axon's case, the FTC was seeking to have Axon hand over intellectual property to another entity as part of their enforcement action. You know, he has concerns that Congress and these agencies are circumventing the Constitution and the rights to have these kind of issues heard by a court and not an agency.
1: I can see what he's saying there. Um there was a obviously though some concern about, you know, when you're talking about like, the structures of, you know, federal government agencies and whether they can be challenged or not. Obviously, there was talk about what this means. So, you know, what does this ruling sort of get you for the future litigation with these agencies? What have you been reading about that?
0: Well, it almost certainly means more litigation for these agencies. Sure. I mean, that's kind of like, I think, the the kind of obvious conclusion. This ruling basically tears down a guard wall that protected the agencies from facing these types of federal lawsuits, or at least had, you know, stopped them before. They went through, like, administrative processes. Um, Matt Perlman, a senior reporter for a competition in Law 360, he wrote about how this might pose a really existential threat to the FTC um, because it's going to push forward litigation that questions, like, the constitutional propriety of how the FTC functions and how it's framed to work. If the courts do find that there's something improper with, like, its in-house administrative activities, like, Axon's challenging, you know, FTC's role as prosecutor and adjudicator and the way administrative judges are protected from removal that might force lawmakers to propose some legislative reforms. Also, though, like, you know, we've kind of seen this with the S with the CFPB right at the Supreme Court. Once there's kind of like a new opening for litigation, more litigation is going to follow. And frankly, like the CFPB, we've seen a lot of its powers and um, its authorities kind of chipped away at in recent Supreme Court cases. Um, And, you know, there's concern that this might happen to the FTC. Uh, I think there's also some concern with the SEC, but I think a a little bit more with the FTC because of how it's authorized under um, a a specific federal law. Also, this opens the door for other federal agencies to be challenged in similar ways. Keith Goldberg, our senior reporter for Energy, he wrote this week about how the case kind of puts some fresh scrutiny to FERC or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and its use of in-house judges. I think just generally we're going to see a lot more litigation.
1: Yeah, it sure sounds that way. The, the, the door has been opened to crack, so we'll, we'll see what what comes through it next.
0: But, Stephen, let's turn to oral arguments now, because we also had a bunch of those this week.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about some of the oral arguments. Um we had five this week. Uh, a- as we mentioned, they're they're getting down to the end of the uh, argument session here. But um, yeah, we could have taken our pick from a lot of them. There was a lot of big cases. There was a False Claims Act case. There was a shareholder lawsuit over direct listings. There was a very tempting religious accommodations case involving a postal worker forced to deliver packages on Sunday. So,
0: Which we've covered before on the show. So listeners, if you're interested, kind of like just reminding yourself of the facts you can look back at our catalog and find that one
1: yeah right that that was a very interesting one but natalie i i want to turn us to an argument that happened this week that you know at least in my mind seems tailor-made for debate in a law school classroom and I'll, i'll explain that in a second oh dear it's about a man in colorado who was convicted of stalking a woman after sending her thousands of unwanted messages on Facebook. Some of it was pretty menacing stuff and she withdrew from public life and feared for her safety. But under the First Amendment, was it free speech? A quote-unquote true threat is unprotected speech. But specifically, what is the proper test for deciding what a true threat is? So this is like, Classic Socratic method, law school classroom stuff, you know, an unsavory set of facts in the case, but some First Amendment debate here.
0: So anything with, like, First Amendment free speech is obviously going to be important, right? Um, But also, this feels like it has some really important real-world implications, too. You know, just as a woman, as a friend to other women who've kind of gotten creepy online messages, and there's always that worry that, like, it might actually turn into, like, something offline um and that there's like a real threat this can have serious implications for lots of people facing this women and men also you know because like there's always like creepy people saying creepy things right um tell us a little bit more about this case
1: right so the woman in this case whose initials are cw she's a singer performer in denver she has a public facebook page And in 2014, a man named Billy Counterman started directly messaging her and sent her thousands of messages over the course of two years. Counterman acted almost as if they were in a relationship, even though it was a one-way dialogue. You know, he sent her memes and things he thought were funny. He commented on photos. And then it gets kind of creepy, rated her attractiveness, lamented her lack of engagement, um, Just really unsavory stuff. Here's a couple of messages that, that really stood out in the briefing. Quote, five years on Facebook, only a couple of physical sightings. Ugh. Was that you in the white Jeep? Fuck off permanently. You're not being good for human relations. Die, don't need you.
0: Oh, my goodness. Those, so, phys- those ones about sightings, those are the, I think, the really scary ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... CW understandably felt threatened. Counterman persisted even after she blocked him several times, and she started withdrawing from public appearances. She feared that Counterman would escalate things. Just a very sad set of facts here. And eventually law enforcement did get involved, and Counterman was ultimately charged with stalking. So in Colorado, the precedent is such that in a situation like this, Courts apply an objective standard that considers the statements and whether a reasonable person in that context would feel threatened. So in other words, whether counterman intended to threaten CW is totally irrelevant. The intention doesn't matter. It's just this objective, reasonable person standard. So a jury found counterman guilty in 2017 and he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison and an appeals court upheld that. Finding that the court had properly applied the subjective standard test. And states handle this differently, but this is how Colorado handles it. Counterman appealed to the Supreme Court, and his argument goes something like this: The test for whether speech is actually a true threat that's unprotected, that should take into account the intent behind it. The standard should be subjective, it should consider the speaker rather than how some objective, reasonable person might feel. Otherwise, you risk chilling free speech. And, you know, there are many instances, especially in the internet age, where things can be misunderstood as threatening, but that wasn't the intent. And someone should be able to speak freely, knowing that, you know, if they end up in trouble, at least they'll be able to explain themselves. That's, that's the basic premise of counterman's argument.
0: This is one, obviously, that I feel like has a lot to be untangled. How did the justices approach this case?
1: Well, as you can imagine, uh, there was a lot of hypotheticals, a lot of them having to do with the intent of the speaker. Uh, Justice Alito had one talking about, you know, threatening to throw a fit if an advocate, you know, continued to continue to speak a certain way. Justice Thomas had one, you know, the phrase, I'm going to kill you. You know, on paper, that's something that, you know, can be objectively maybe considered threatening, but really depends on the speaker. And, you know, in the days of messaging apps, words on a page mean different things. You know, a sibling could text that to their other sibling for eating the last brownie. But, you know, so so it kind of depends on context there. Fair point. Uh, Justice Sotomayor offered a hypothetical about the rapper Eminem he was actually brought into this and that song that he wrote about killing his wife. And she expressed skepticism about the idea that intent wouldn't be taken into a context. You know, the objective standard relies on the idea of what a reasonable person thinks. But reasonable people can disagree about what's acceptable. One person can listen to that song and think something totally different than another person. Uh, there was actually a lot of hypotheticals about the conversation about like a couple, a husband and wife. Uh, one of them is an author and writes a fictional book about killing their spouse. You know, is that a threat? What's the intent behind that? So you can see how this kind of gets off the rails a little bit. And once again, I just imagine like the law school classroom debate happening. But yeah, that's that's kind of some of the hypotheticals that were thrown out there.
0: I imagine it's getting written into syllabuses for like next September's courses already. Um, These are interesting points. What were some of the justices kind of skeptical about on either side of the arguments?
1: Yeah, Justice Kavanaugh expressed some concern about the suggested alternative, you know, making it more subjective. He thought that that could open the door to someone excusing their conduct as a joke. You know, hey, I didn't mean it that way. That in theory could you know, get you out of certain situations. Justice Barrett at one point told counterman's advocate that everything you're saying I'm uncomfortable with as a matter of criminal liability, which I suppose can be taken both ways. But I want to read a little bit of their exchange because I think it's a place where the advocate seems to get to the heart of this chilling free speech argument. So, quote, when you're talking about speech, Speakers have to have some sort of confidence in advance about whether what they're saying is going to wind up getting them in trouble. In the past, intent has been a bulwark because speakers know their intent, and so if their intent matters, that gives them some comfort that they can say what they were going to say without criminal punishment. But when the standard is what a reasonable person would think, then you're thinking, well, what does that mean? And frequently, you don't know what the answer to that is. And Justice Barrett responds, maybe you should be careful if you're going to say something like, I will kill you, or I'm going to burn it all down, or I'm going to shoot up a school. So a little bit of pushback there from Justice Barrett. I don't think she was entirely comfortable with some of these phrases and how how they're interpreted.
0: I mean, on an intellectual level, on a legal level, this is such an interesting discussion. But at the heart of this, there's a woman on the receiving end of these messages that cause emotional distress and anguish. Did that get lost in in the arguments?
1: Well, the state of Colorado kept coming back to that. And there was an exchange with Chief Justice Roberts. He brought up some of the messages Counterman sent. Something like, quote, cyber life is going to kill you. Come out for coffee. Or counterman sent a meme that said a man's idea of edible arrangements with a picture of a Jack Daniels bottle. And the chief seemed to be kind of getting to the idea of these being fairly ordinary messages. You know, he made a joke about, I can't promise I've never told someone that cyber life will kill you, you know, and and everybody kind of laughed about that. And I think his point was like, look, if you're going to be held liable for words like that, you ought to be able to explain what you meant. But I mean, it, this is kind of like weird to hear and And Colorado pushed back on that and said, "That's not really what happened here. You know, these might be innocuous on their own, but taken as a whole, this is a man who sent thousands of messages over two years. You have to take that into account and and how she felt about that. But then Justice Gorsuch jumped in and noted that, okay, so context is important, right? So if you're going to take into account the context of everything, then you have to also include the intent of the speaker. The jury in Counterman's case never heard evidence about his mental state, and that would have been relevant context. So Justice Gorsuch kind of jumping in uh, to support the Chief Justice there. So I don't know. That's kind of how it went this back and forth.
0: So obviously, a lot going on there. Um, any takeaways, though, as to where they might be leaning or anything else we can take away from how arguments went?
1: Yeah, it seemed like the justices really seemed to home in on this idea of uh, some sort of recklessness standard when determining whether true threats are protected or unprotected. That kind of seems like where we landed, and that's basically considering conduct reckless if the Speaker commits an act, knowing it might create the risk of harm. So someone like Counterman, he actually had a history of these incidents. You could still maybe penalize a person like that but also take into account the intent. So, you know, I think in summary, it's really hard to tell how they'll come out on this, possibly along those lines. I heard enough questions from the justices to think that they were pretty concerned about the idea that someone can't explain themselves and their intention during a trial, but how far they take that idea and what standard they settle on, I'm really curious to to see how that opinion, you know, sort of shakes out.
0: Agreed. I think this one will be one to watch um, as we wait for the rest of the opinions this term. Stephen, I think that just about does it for us. But before we sign off, um, I did want to just give a bit of an update on a topic we've been talking about a lot. This term uh, in the podcast, which is the calls for ethics reform at the Supreme Court. Uh, We've had a bit of movement there yesterday on Thursday. Senator Dick Durbin, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, invited the chief justice to testify before his panel on May 2nd to talk about how the Supreme Court handles ethical issues. Obviously, this comes at a time where we've seen just recently, you know, reports uh, calling out Justice Thomas for not listing uh, some some of his dealings with a a wealthy GOP donor. Um, And just, you know, that's just been added to kind of a growing stream of ethical concerns that have been raised for over the past couple of years at the at the court.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll see if the chief justice um, takes up that invitation certainly uh, we're going to keep an eye on that. And yeah, things are really escalating quickly in in, in that area. So uh, yeah, we'll have more to report on with that for sure. But um, it's been great talking with you this week, Natalie.
0: Likewise, Stephen. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader, Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and special thanks to a bunch of reporters whose uh, reporting contributed to this episode. Hannah Albarazzi, Dress Tangle, Caleb Simmons, Matthew Perlman, Keith Goldberg, and Vin Guerreri. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com/slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. Thanks so much.